0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Pascal Patrick Matzler, Associate Professor at the Pontifical Catholic University of Valparaiso, Chile. His book, Mentoring and Co-Writing for Research Publication Purposes, Interaction, and Text Development in Doctoral Supervision, was published by Routledge this year. The book is part of the series, Routledge Research in English for Specific Purposes, edited by Brian Paltridge and Sue Starfield. Here's a pointed question. Why aren't more universities doing more to help students of science write more as they need to, more as they want to? There are some universities doing something to help students write somewhat as they need to be and somewhere like what they'd want to be, but I'm asking, why not more? My question is by no means pointed at you, my listeners, because the demographic of this podcast is not going to include the people doubtful of or indifferent to the value of writing to research. My question, why not more? also points past the early-career researchers, past the mid-career researchers, past the late-career researchers in STEM, because all of them, by virtue of their career success, recognize the importance of writing to what they do. They know their science, and really, every position from postdoc onward is testament to yet another person's grasp of the science. People don't advance this far and not eat and breathe the theories and the data and the methods of their branches of science. However, the averse is not likewise true. Namely, that the people who finish their careers at a PhD are the people who do not grasp the science. Much, much more likely is that most of these PhDs, of course, do grasp the science and certainly would continue to eat and breathe it if only they'd been allowed to, if only they'd been able to. If a PhD hasn't led to a career in research, then very rarely is a person's grasp of the science the reason why. While sometimes it will be life in general that got in the way, very often it will be communication skills that got in the way. And so it is not to the PhDs either that my question, why not more, is pointed. My question, I point at the administrators, at the coordinators of study programs, at the Boards of trustees and other executives and leaders of universities everywhere, why are you not ensuring that your universities do more to help students of science write more as they need to, more as they want to? Because it's in your hands. But, dear listeners, management and academia do not fall inside the demographic of this podcast, so the onus is on you to repeat and spread my question. And if you are a PhD, or if you are a scientist whose career has just begun, or if you are a mentor in the sciences, then the onus weighs heavier on you to point my question at your own management because you have the most to gain. Because it will be your labs, your departments, your project funding that benefit most from universities finally acknowledging the place of writing in science, i.e. the center, and then acting on it. Point the question at the people who organize your studies or who administer your labs. It's a vital question, this question, why not more? And it's a question that I ask here at the start of today's interview because, in my reading anyway, the book by today's guest, Pascal Matzler, the book Mentoring and Co-Writing for Research Publication Purposes, is precisely the sort of research which must precede any provision of more for STEM writers. We must first know what STEM writers are doing now and what they need to be able to do now and soon before we can begin to give them more. Mentoring and co-writing for research publication purposes opens a real-life view onto the practices of writing in STEM PhDs and beyond there in STEM generally. It's the career scientists who possess the ability to turn their research into publishable products. Even the degree of PhD is very often awarded according to a person's publication history. Imagine a student's publication history. But so it is. And so I think it should be, because if later a lab team's two-year project is riding on the acceptance or rejection of a nine-page manuscript, then a PhD's education, nay, already an undergraduate's education, must include exercise in the craft of writing. Students need to be writing more, and they need to be writing more as they will be writing when they become professional researchers. This aspect of a scientist's education should be fit to the adage, practice like you play, because you'll play like you practice. Every student needs to internalize the genre of the research article because it is in the assemblies of research articles in chains of citation and in the lists generated by search engines, because it is in such displays of text that scientific fields advance and also measure advancement. Truly, Every student needs more of this, and many a postdoc too, nor do I expect that any senior researcher would scoff at the chance to write his or her studies better. Pascal Matzler's mentoring and co-writing for research publication purposes, and the as yet thin line of research that Pascal's book continues, these works have made a beginning. And so I make my own humble beginning here too. I ask, why not more? Why? Why? We are learning more about what is needed and what is wanted in STEM writing, so the time has come for the pointed question, why not more? So, and to today's episode, Pascal Matzler and mentoring and co-writing, Pascal, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
1: Hi, Daniel. Thank you. Um,
0: I'm very welcoming of this book and this line of research. And I'm also very happy to see that you give due place to methodology. And the methodology of your book is also what leads to findings that traditional conventional text analyses have the tendency to miss or to simplify on. So some of the greater findings in this book really come from the ethnographical approach that you take and you give us an entire chapter with a detailed background as to the why behind your methodology and, and the how. I wonder if you could explore that for the listeners in sort of a brief
1: overview. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, now, uh, the first thing I have to explain is that that this uh, ethnographic methodology it it comes really from the research questions that I for formulated like the main question that I had was really how do these students learn to write or how does a supervisor, what Americans call an advisor or the British call a supervisor, how do these supervisors work together with a doctoral student to actually write an article? Because I think we're all aware that a keyboard is only fit for one person. We haven't invented yet the multiple person keyboard. And so how do these people actually go about writing an article? And I actually want to go a little bit backwards to when I first became interested in, in, in these types of questions. When I was sitting in my office uh, as a linguist and, and I was friends with a computer scientist and he sent a student to my office, a doctoral student's office, said, uh, and he told me, this student will show me his first draft later today could you please have a look at it and give him a hand? And so I received the student and I saw his work. I saw this first draft and I realized there were multiple problems in that first draft. And I knew exactly what it had to look like, but I didn't know how to get the student from A to B. And more importantly, I didn't know how my colleague would try to get the student from A to B. And that's when I became really interested in in observing people writing and and talking and and uh, doing these things usually at the same time, and so I started to look for methodologies that could uh, investigate these sorts of actions, and I, I I was lucky because there's a currently there's a lot of development in this area academic writing. Um, is being researched more ethnographically now that uh, Brian Poltisch and Sue Starfield and others uh, are working hard um, on d- developing and adapting these uh, approaches and I was also very f- fortunate to find Paul Pryor's work who also um, back about 10 years back uh, wrote a few book t- chapters on how to research what happens when people talk and write at the same time and in in meetings, in writing groups and and so on. And that's how I formulated this methodology um, based on this guidance where basically I would, um, I would, I would, obviously I would approach these supervisors and students and we would agree on a plan and they were very generous and they would, uh, share with me their whole journey so i would go to their meetings and i would record them i would audio record their meetings i would uh, make my notes i would sit there quietly in their meetings i would also have interviews with them uh, sometimes after every meeting so sometimes more sporadically Um, i would also be copied into their email exchanges i would get every draft and every feedback on on every draft and so I could really look at the unfolding of their, re- of their writing activities and from different points of views, you know, from, from different p- perspectives. And then once these often very chaotic activities were over, I would then have the privilege of a PhD of having three or four years just sitting at my desk transcribing and coding and reflecting and drinking coffee and reflecting some more to, to actually think about these things. And then go back and have more interviews and talk to them about my my interpretations and conclusions. So that's basically how the texture of my book began to develop. And as you said, Daniel, I wanted to to actually... Put all that into a chapter because I thought some people might want to do something similar. They might not just want my conclusions, they might actually be interested in replicating that sort of approach. So I wanted to sort of give a little recipe in one chapter.
0: And I do hope that more people uh, do replicate that approach and in more settings. um, You were in a setting which is represented by people in. STEM actually publishing to receive their PhDs, so that their PhD is then an assemblage of then published uh, manuscripts with a beginning and an end. Um, that's not, of course, uh, universal practice. It's it, I do believe it's becoming more widespread. It seems to have, as I mentioned briefly in my uh, intro, a lot of sense for me because it brings the you know, the budding writer of the STEM fields into contact with the work that he or she is going to be doing practically daily, isn't it?
1: Uh, yes, of course. Uh, I think there's, there's a definite, um, there's a big difference between what we see in the sort of the science and technology setting that I research because all my three cases were definitely in a scientific field. Uh, um, the first one was in earth sciences, which is mainly sort of sand dunes and, and marine currents. The second one was sort of in the, in the neuromodulation of, of muscle movements. The third one was computational chemistry. So all these are very um, uh, technical scientific topics. And of course, in the arts and humanities, we have quite a different model. But I do worry... Some universities are actually trying to force the the degree by publication method uh, or route onto the arts and humanities. And then sometimes in the arts and humanities, you get journals that take a year in in either publishing or not your submissions. So I think there's practicalities there as well. There's limitations there that... these people I worked with, they would usually expect the manuscript to be back on their desks within four to six weeks. And that's a luxury that we just don't have in our own field, I, I, I think.
0: Yes, no, de- uh, definitely. I mean, I had in mind the STEM fields when I said that I find that this uh, method of, of uh, publication to to Ph.D., seems seems to make very much sense yeah Uh, but of course as as you move through of course as you move through the social sciences uh, into the humanities uh, this model is not going to translate very easily i i I agree on that point for sure um you i want to just come back to something that you said as you were talking about the methodology and, and sort of the the genesis of the uh, whole study that you've you've performed here over um, a course of years, uh, that uh, you saw this uh, computer scientist's paper, <laughs> knowing what it meant it was meant to look like, but not necessarily knowing how to get the student from A to B. I would describe this probably as the typical situation of the mentor in STEM, uh, it, just because they are. I mean, this is almost a become a cliche in in writing studies. Just because you are an expert writer yourself doesn't necessarily mean that you have uh, the reflective um, training to be able to pass on that knowledge to somebody else.
1: Yes, it's 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 something i uh, it's something I saw in these cases as well that that uh, v- very often the The supervisor would try one approach and maybe that wouldn't work and then he would try a different approach and then they would try a third approach and then somehow they would start to develop the manuscript and very often it's not entirely clear to to the participants either like what exactly is missing here why is this manuscript not developing as we would like and in one case, for example, um, in, in my first case, the, the supervisor first started attacking just at the sentence level, just m- moving the sentence around. M- maybe there was too much of a passive voice or maybe the sentence was, was, was too long or too short. And then he moved on to the paragraph level. And then once he could sort of see clearly at that level... Then he realized that, in fact, entire sections had to be rewritten, entire sections uh, maybe would go better in a different paper, Uh, entire sections were missing from this paper. But these were things that he couldn't actually see at the beginning. So first he had to wade through all the sort of sentence-level language to then realize what was happening. And this, in turn, produced a lot of surprise and a lot of doubts in the student because the, the student would then say hang on a second, but we already fixed that sentence and now you're throwing it out. What's happening? So a lot of these interactions between the supervisor and the doctoral students were not smooth and, uh, and sort of streamlined at all. It was very recursive. It was very doubtful. It was very much backtracking, let's try again. And this at the beginning seemed like a bug. And then I started realizing very slowly that this was actually a feature, that this is how it's meant to be. And in that sense, I was like the doctoral student as well who was sitting there and slowly learning, hang on, writing is messy. Even if you are a professor, even if you are a recognized authority, even if you've run fifth experiments, writing is still going to be messy. And that's a recognition that, that I made and the recognition that these students made as they co-authored with their supervisors. I wonder, though, <laughs> I'd be the
0: first to tell you that writing is messy, <laughs> especially since, as my listeners do know, I, I do most of my writing longhand, which means that it looks really messy as well. There's, there's a certain level of satisfaction, though, when you look at a page that's just full of ink and scribblings and boxes and movements and so on. Um, but it can be scary as well. Uh, so I, I'm not putting into question at all the idea of writing being messy, but um And this really gets to a general interest of mine that kept sort of recurring in my thoughts as I read the study. I wonder where would be the point of entry in all of this for writing professionals? Because these processes of writing and research that these uh, uh, STEM students and STEM professors are going through, I mean, uh, just if I consider the time that these researching and teaching professors spent at these meetings, helping uh, these PhDs learn to write, learn to communicate, learn to find their identity in the the field. All of that really just made me start to think, where are the points of entry? Where are the access points for writing professionals to support these people? I don't think that it's necessary that, you know, these level researchers be left alone in that task for that aspect of their mentoring.
1: Oh, absolutely. No, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not advocating for us to just step back and let them do their m- magical thing. You know, they, they absolutely do need us to, uh, uh, st- st- especially these days with the universities being veritable industries of, of Ph.D. production and so on. There there are many, many roles for writing professionals. Uh around that relationship. Maybe not sitting in between these two people, like literally in the office with them. Like you said, the amount of hours they put in, we cannot possibly compete with that or we cannot possibly participate in that intensity. But there are many roles for us. Some roles that come to mind, even with the supervisors themselves, it would be so useful if these... Supervisors actually had workshops with writing professionals, with language professionals, just to just to learn some of the terminology, just to talk about things like moves, for example, or just to uh, discuss uh, how how, for example, uh, how the sections of a paper are organized. Uh, what, for, for example, there are some excellent little papers about how to write a title, for example, just so they have a little folder on their computer and then they can go there and tell the students, oh, I don't really like your title. Have a look at this paper. They have a really good suggestion on how to write titles. So just to give them like a little bit of a toolkit that they can then throw at their students as well. Uh, So that's one thing. I think uh, workshops for... um, uh, for the professors, for the PIs, that they have, that they have a better toolkit. Also, I think some of the workshops, some of the courses that these doctoral students take in their first year study are actually really useful. All three of my of the students that, that, that I worked with, they had taken uh, workshops with language professionals, so they had a pretty good basis, a pretty good structural understanding of what a research article looked like of what the different structures were so they had a basis to go into Um, I would say that basis was maybe 10% of the knowledge that they needed to write a good article but it was nonetheless an important 10% so I think the courses we're already offering are super important and then, and this is probably where we get into a little bit of a problematic area, that all three of these people who appear in my book, they are, I mean, the three professors, they're amazing people, because they welcomed me into their office for six months to just sit there and listen to all their problems and struggle. I, I became convinced that I was actually researching sort of an ideal scenario of extremely competent and extremely generous academics who are interested in writing and who also understand that this is a difficult topic and there are struggles. Around the margins of my activities, I came into contact with many other uh, doctoral students who told me about their own situations. And... It's not always as fruitful as the as the examples that are in my book. As you said yourself, Daniel, many uh, scientists struggle to teach writing. Many scientists don't think it's their job to teach writing. Many scientists, and I must say, especially native speaker scientists, have absolutely no clue about the struggles of their non native speaker research students and they find it really hard to differentiate between the language problem and the research problem and there's a lot of frustration there there's a lot of uh, discontinuity there and i think a lot of these science faculties they should probably have some kind of backup unit where um where specialists in their area and language specialists sort of help to support and help to solve some of these uh, problems that do happen.
0: This backup unit, wonderful idea, Pascal. (laughs) This backup unit is something that I've also uh, thought a bit about myself. Of course, the funding would need to be there, but to be honest, the funding is there in the sciences. I mean, it's the grant funding that makes the sciences so much more attractive to universities and so much more center focused now at uh, university um, management than the humanities, because the money there is flowing. and 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 what if I'm 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 sort of entertaining a thought that I've been batting around in my own head for a while. What if this backup unit took a very concrete form. What if next to the machinery, equipment, and uh, model organisms and uh, all the other chemicals needed in the lab, somebody also ordered an embedded editor? In other words, part of the lab team was an embedded language professional who was much like the study that you refer to as uh, Inspirational. For what you were doing by uh, Bruno uh, latour um, where they for years they lived in the lab i mean I, I see I see this I didn't know Bruno even in the um uh, it, 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 even was involved in some of the experiments apparently as a lab hand. <laughs> but I mean that's 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 jokingly not that's not what I mean what what I'm trying to say is that it, it Why isn't it possible that um, we recognize that indeed the PI, you did have exceptional PIs, I do believe there, um, but that the PI's main responsibility is indeed not the writing. It's partially the writing, but the support that he or she will need will be this kind of support that any leader of a large group with multiple responsibilities and multiple tasks is going to need. And one of those areas is the written product. And that's where the embedded editor would come in.
1: Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it just think it's interesting that you, that you mentioned the, the large research groups. I think if if any of your listeners, if, if there's any PhD students or prospective PhD students who are li- listening to this podcast and they're l- looking for an angle that I did not look at. In fact, I didn't really look at large research groups. I had contact with some large research groups, especially in biomedical sciences. But uh, I struggled a little bit with the um, with the ethics required to actually uh, embed myself in this large biomedical research group. Uh, So I actually researched more the little teams where there's one PI and one doctoral students and they work as a pair. What I would really like in a follow-up study is to actually look at these larger groups where maybe even an undergraduate student uh, runs the experiment and then the master student Tabulates the result, and the first year the doctoral students write the first draft, and the final year doctoral student uh, checks and edits that draft. And then it's only the final year doctoral student who actually goes and talks to the PI once the PI returns from one of his conferences occasionally and has a look at this draft. Because I have a feeling that the dynamics there are very different. They probably produce these uh, articles a lot more smoothly but I also have a feeling that maybe the junior members learn a lot less. So I think in uh, I think it would be very interesting to have, as you say, this embedded language professional, and it would be almost funny if we disguise the embedded language professional as some kind of sophisticated machine that we need to spend millions of dollars on, and then we'll probably get funded. But... If we tell them it's just a person uh, who, who, who happens to be a writing professional, then the funding might not be there as as you say. So but it's <laughs> but it's definitely it's definitely the way the way forward. It's definitely the 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 way forward. But I think it's a gradual thing. It's a great I mean, even in my own interaction with these people every interview we had, they were just so surprised at how much I actually understood, not not about the technicalities, but about the problems they were facing with their writing. Because they just expected me to ask about verbs and commas and they were so surprised when I was actually conversant in the rhetoric that they were trying to, and the problems and the choices that they were facing. I think a lot of people in, in the sciences are not actually aware that we have these research traditions, that we have, like you say, that we have La Tour and Volga, and we have these methods, and we have this body of, of literature already at our disposal. I think as language professionals or as linguists, I think we haven't actually knocked enough on the doors of the science and technology faculties to actually offer our wares.
0: It would appear that the people in STEM don't realize how interested we are in them. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: And, and, And I mean, we're interested, obviously, for professional purposes being very interested in communication, but I'm sure there's a large uh, contingent of us, I count myself amongst them, who are interested for, um, I don't want to say idealistic reasons, but certainly uh, involving some sort of values or beliefs in the importance of science and the importance of it working right, right?
1: Of course, absolutely. I think in the last few years, with all you know, with all the vaccine hesitancy and you know, and, and and certain political situations in the U.S. and so on, I think I think science has has suddenly been put in the hot seat, you know, and and the reproduction of science and and suddenly science has become more like. Society has become more interested in science recently, and I think it's a very um it's something that the same scientists have noticed. And I think even we as language professionals have noted that the rhetoric of science has suddenly become under a spotlight again. You know, like like scientists communicate and suddenly there is pushback now, and that's something very, very novel that maybe five six years ago wasn't on anyone's radar so that's an interesting development and I absolutely share this idealized vision that you have for me maybe the most beautiful aspect of of my years that I spent with these people was just seeing how how scientific knowledge is is gained how it is reproduced and, and how new scientists are born, sort of, sort of how these students become uh, reasoning and arguing scientists and how they develop the, these notion. That's maybe the one key point of my book, that, that the student walks into this meeting with a graph, with a chart. And he's convinced that this graph, this chart, contains the truth. And all they need to do is send that chart or that graph to a paper, and there will be a round of applause for the new knowledge. And his supervisor, slowly and carefully over many months, will explain to the student, no, that's not how it works. First, you have to verbalize this chart, what you see on on it. Then you have to verbalize what you think it means, why you think it means that and then you actually have to convince your readers that it actually means that. And this is going to be a huge problem because other people will disagree with that and other people's careers might be ruined by your interpretation. So we're going to have to do this very slowly and very carefully and we might even be wrong and we have to deal with that as well. So, there's this very slow uh, awakening of the rhetorical persona in the doctoral student over the course of writing this first research article, and that's probably the the idealistic aspect, you know, that you mentioned that, that I also witnessed.
0: It, it it puts me in mind of one of the episodes. Um... The book is just loaded with detailed looks at what these mentors are doing and how the mentees are taking it up and uh, bringing it forward in their own ways. Um, We have throughout uh, quotations from the actual meetings, Um, we have dialogue, we have um, drafts of the papers, we we have computerized images of the meeting rooms. Um, We really get to know these six people. Um, but what you were just saying put me in mind of uh, the, as you were saying, it's not just your results. It's not figure four point one that matters. It's How do you embed that in the continuing discourse that flows past this university and over it and through it, right? From all over, right? How, how, how do you do that? For instance, for instance, Kate talking about, uh, this is one of the mentors, Kate's talking about the abstract. And very interesting discussions about different parts of the uh, article in this book. the abstract being one um, the abstract is a high level summary. Um, <laughs> I like to think of it, and she also uses this language like, talking about selling yeah the paper. think of it as a billboard that summarizes an automobile right <laughs> um, but she says what you want is people read your abstract and go. Oh, I really need to download this paper and read it. And this is the key moment. We hear from Layla, who is the mentee, I hope so, and laughs. Now, it's this granularity that you offer in your um, study that shows just what you're talking about that the budding scientists need to also recognize their ambition and extrapolate from there that ambition is everywhere in every scientist, and it's going to increase. Exponentially, as the scientist continues in his or her career, and as his or her studies become more and more impactful, and as his or her groups grow in size, etc., etc., you see the line of 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 continuation. But it's that realization which needs to click, I think.
1: Yes, absolutely. There's, I think, there's two or three different uh, sort of uh, aspects to that ambition that the student needs to discover or needs to harness you know and and it's for first of all it's very interesting the example you make of 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 the abstract because one of the things that gave me a lot of pleasure as a a language specialist as a writing specialist is that even though these uh, supervisors they are not familiar with john swales they're not familiar with ken hyland but they do employ so many of the concepts, so many of the of the things we have identified. You know, like for example, when Highland talks about the abstract being not just a summary, but also being front matter, being a selling. That's exactly what Kate w- was doing. You know, and and that's why I put that conversation there, like word by word, just to say. In a way, also to to show, look, all these abstract concepts that we think are happening because of the way we analyze the text, they are also happening there in verbal form in their meetings. So absolutely. And, And one of them, as you say, is the promotional aspects. These young people, they have to learn to promote their work, and they have to learn to very efficiently promote their work because the abstract is 200 w- words long. There's not much space. You have to hit exactly the right keys to make the reader read on. And at the same time, it's not just self, self-promotion. self I think at some point in our, our literature, maybe we've started to emphasize the promotion a little bit too much. We've started to emphasize the competitive aspect of science maybe a little bit too much. If you go back to the to, to the literature of the of the 90s when when um, John Swales was just starting out and and Greg Myers also wrote a, a few very interesting books and, and, and articles, there was a sort of a balance between also giving your colleagues, um, their due respect of of not overemphasizing your own achievements too much either, and I think the the students that I observed they struggled with this calibration. Very often they would they, their first drafts would say, "Here I bring the solution to all our problems," and very innocently they would sort of make very strong statements. And they probably wouldn't even realize how strong those statements were. And then the supervisor would have to walk them back and say, you know what, why don't we just say that this might be an alternative interpretation? Because otherwise, if it falls into the hand of this and that reviewer, we'll get absolutely destroyed. And then I'll meet them at the conference, and I won't even be able to look them in the eyes anymore. So so that sort of balancing act be, be between... Uh, look at this it's very interesting but also being respectful of uh, other theories other possible interpretation is a balancing act that, that that the student is not familiar with because it's not in the textbooks that they used in their undergraduate years it is there in the articles that they read before but they seem to sort of gloss over that when they read the articles they're just looking for the ingredients for, for the, oh, here's what I need for my own experiment. Oh, here's the number I need. Here's the ingredient I need. But they don't seem to read, a student doesn't seem to read the article as a rhetorical machine until they actually have to write it. And then they realize that there's this other aspect to scientific communication.
0: Yeah, and that's that's really the thing that I'm talking about when um, I got up on my soapbox at the beginning of this episode and talked about more because it seems like we're not seizing enough opportunities to prepare students uh, who are becoming professional researchers to transition more easily. Um, You mentioned Myers in the 90s. One of the quotes I noted in your book from him was, Textbooks are scientific writing without the politeness. Uh, you mentioned textbooks. This, you know, this this could be done differently. Um, other researchers, uh, Christopher Thies, for instance, has noted that so much of graduate level work relies on research articles, but research articles aren't written to graduate level students. I mean, there's so many gaps in the possibilities for. Picking up the subject knowledge and also picking picking up the genre savvy, if I might call it, to be able to actually then when you go into your PhD or at the very latest your postdoc position and start writing these articles, aren't at square one, right? It, it shouldn't it shouldn't have to be that hard.
1: Of course, yeah, and and in fact, it's very variable. You might have noticed in the last in my last case that that I showed the actual. Sp- Supervisor, he he admitted that even his own PhD had been mostly technical, and even after that, his first job was was with a a defense contractor. And obviously, the generals weren't interested in research articles and beautiful arguments; they wanted results results that you could you know shoot out of the sky. You know, so so basically. That supervisor, once he became a professor at university, that's when he started writing. Uh, as, uh, uh, that's when he needed to begin arguing uh, towards his peers. And he himself admitted that that was very late to actually begin this journey. So uh, absolutely, it's perfectly p- possible for students to slip through the nets and end up with a PhD in hand without having developed uh, their rhetorical, their uh, genre savvy, as you call it.
0: Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've accounted this as well at uh, labs that I've taught writing to where postdocs tell me, you, you say, for instance, that, you know, junior members in in the chain of producing an article may uh, end up in that process learning a lot less about how the ar- actual article gets put together in the final stages, which are the stages where the adjustments are made that are absolutely crucial, right? I mean, either the editor sees there something that is going to make it past uh, the referees or not, sees there something that clicks with the rest of the research line or not, right? Those, 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 those last edits are crucial. And and the lower stage, um, work on that, um, that draft are, you know, those people aren't necessarily picking up on those things and they could do this for a few years. I had postdocs, uh, telling me essentially, yeah, I feel like I'm a results producer, right? <laughs> i they all get sweeped up off my desk and then put into the final article. I'm not, I'm not participating and I, I know I need to, right? So, um, and 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 this is what I meant to 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 just maybe hammer a little bit on this 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 sort of idea I have of mine about the about the embedded editor. Um, this uh, this person could certainly do very good research, as you suggested when I mentioned it before. But I would say the principal aim would be to to be the person in the research group who is aware of the writing that's going on right? I mean, if you've got a go-to person who is also caught up on the science, yeah, not entering it from, you know, Mars, right? This person is clearly not going to be, you know, able to contribute ideas, although you'd be very surprised, you know, what a stupid question (laughs) can actually get in motion for people who are expert at things uh, because they maybe miss the stupid question. But that aside, um, the the point is, is that somebody has their eye on the entire team, on the entire text, on the thinking and writing that's going on, and is there as the go-to person.
1: You know, maybe one of the solutions here, again, going... (laughs) Much further back, uh, in a previous life, uh, I say jokingly, but back in my early early 20s, I was... I was an architecture student in England. Uh, I, I was hoping to be an ar- architect back then. And and I did my undergraduates and I finished my undergraduates. And then I had to go and work for an architectural practice because uh, in, in England, the, the architectural profession is still very much sort of arts and craft based, sort of apprenticeship based. So I went into this architectural practice and, and, the, and the RIBA, the, the British Architects Association, they provided me with a folder and this folder had at a checklist. And I had to do all those things while at the architectural practice. If I want to become an architect, I had to tick all these things and then my supervisors would have to sign next to it. For example, one was to design a disabled bathroom. And you would say, well, that's not a big problem. But at the uh, uh, architectural practice, all the students were waiting for their turn to design the disabled bathroom because they all needed that signature next to the disabled bathroom you know so maybe in the phd's we need something like that you know like this big checklist for every doctoral students and there would be like one line have you re- have you replied to a reviewer at a journal you know have you have you written a first draft of a discussion section and so on and then you and maybe that way the supervisors will actually realize hang on a second i need to teach all these things to my student because they're not going to be given the phd unless they've done this unless they, they've done that i think that's a great
0: idea and, <laughs> and i think it's a uh... A system that could be employed quite practically. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, it's working in other fields, right? (laughs) Um, And and this also brings me back to the idea of mentoring, which Hmm. is actually central to your entire study because we're dealing with three mentoring relationships here. And there's um, a wonderful podcast, which I've referred to a number of times on this show, Working Scientist, put out by Nature. Uh, Many of you may already be familiar with it. And they've just done a series on mentoring and some of the thoughts that come up there uh, were thoughts that i was harking back to as i was reading your study i had to think yeah these three people are really exceptional as you've noted exceptional mentors people who were you know not necessarily the typical supervisor that uh, a phd is going to meet or the typical scenario that a phd is going to find him or herself uh, him or herself in um very briefly just to uh, Make my point from this podcast. The two guests were Ruth Gotian and uh, Christine Fund, uh, two scientists in education, and 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 they pleaded for a change from the idea of mentoring to mentorship, and they're purpose and 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 switching those terms like that, the sort of switch that people in linguistics or literature studies will <laughs> will, will not find odd because just a couple of letters make a big difference. But nonetheless, the, their purpose was that they wanted to elevate this idea of the bi directional reality of the mentor and the mentee, that this relationship is going both ways, that there's learning on both sides. And that the basic idea of the mentoring, or well, let's call it now mentorship relationship, is that there is career support and there is psychosocial support. And it is Christine Fund who puts that into such concrete terms when she says that the mentor is there to be the one who believes in you, your, the mentee, even when you don't believe in yourself, in whatever area. Right on the personal level, on the scientific level, on the communication level, the list goes onward there, and you can see a lot of that in in the cases that you uh, followed so closely. Um, for example, the one of the more surprising findings findings that surprising to me, and, and as you emphasize in the book, also surprising for you this 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 direct intervention of the supervisor into a text which you know, with raise the hairs on many people in in, in in writing centers. They're like, God, you don't do that. Don't touch it like that. <laughs> don't do the text for the person. Um, turns out, actually, in Ramon's case, the, the mentee's case, to be a boon. Um, he sees this as a wonderful learning opportunity, and it inverts the relationship because Ramon starts asking his mentor questions as to why he's writing it that way. I mean, that's just for me, a perfect illustration of what mentorship can be.
1: Yes, you, you're absolutely right. I think that the key point there is that, that this transformation of the lab result into a text, it can take different forms. The relationship can take different forms. And as you say, like in some of these relationships, the mentor would, really just give advice they would just read and comment and just brainstorm and then the student would go away and then the student would write again and rewrite and pretty much in 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 all of these cases it started like that and then over time whenever things were not working out or whenever there was like a particularly difficult passage the relationship as you say would invert and the supervisor would actually take over the text and would rewrite something and that would be the student's opportunity to say but why why did you change that why can't we have it this way and that's how the student would learn this sort of transformation of lab result into writing result. but i also want to go back to what you just said a minute ago about the bi-directional quality of mentorship one of the beautiful things here is that One question that I had was, why does the supervisor spend all these hours? These are extremely busy people. They have huge bags under their eyes. They live on caffeine. Why do they spend hours and hours hammering away at this text in such apparently inefficient form, you know, back and forth and so on? And there's various reasons for it. One reason is obviously that they want to be a good mentor. They want to train these new scientists and they know it takes time. It takes hours and weeks and months. But the other reason is that it's actually the student who knows the project at the granular level much better than the supervisor. So very often in their conversations, in their negotiations, the conversation itself is bidirectional too. So the supervisor will say, oh, this ends, we need to rewrite this. We need to say this. And then the student says, "Actually, that's not true. We can't say that because that's not actually what I did, or that's not actually what that other experiment said, and so on." So there, they so there is always a bidirectional quality to it, and in fact, the supervisors are very much aware of that. That you know how quickly science progresses. You know the amount of papers that come out in every subfield every day. It has to be bidirectional.
0: Yeah, I mean, the uh, collaborative uh, efforts involved in science are just, I mean, if we get back to the idea of uh, the humanities, they're just unknown there. And it's, it's also one of the findings that comes out so clearly in your study. You talk about uh, the distributed expertise in collaborative research, which was an idea that I found was uh, really fascinating because it, it fits also right into the place of writing in that collaborative research. So the supervisors and students don't simply, as you say, interact to publish a paper, they also publish a paper to interact. In other words, what's going on there is there is an end product in mind and there is an acceptance that's, you know, on the horizon that is hoped for. But the science is being done and the the data is being understood as a group, because only as a group can it be done.
1: Absolutely. No, absolutely. I have nothing to add there. I completely agree. Okay. Well, then. (laughs) (laughs)
0: one, one other, uh, since I'm at some of the major findings uh, from your study, it really coming directly out of your methodology, which is, again, what I appreciate so much of the book, um, is the fact that um, you were able to not just view the text. The text is, of course, very important. Even studies have been done where you know, the drafts of the manuscript up through submission and so on are are followed. Um, But you were able to follow the whole other aspect of it around the text. You you call it, for instance, in, in one area, the research talk. And you've got the research writing and the talk around it. And one of the most fascinating aspects there for me was, it was through the research talk being translated into the research writing that you could Literally talking about these these beginning scientists, these becoming scientists, literally observe the process of discoursal or disciplinary identity formation, and that for me was just amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I, it's, uh, I agree. This it's it's, um, and it's not just. The, I would say for me there, the most fascinating aspect is that very often that even the supervisor as a scientist, they are amazing risk takers. Like, you know, they they have these results. They have their research talk. You know, they, they completely agree with each other. Yes, they, this is exactly what happened the experiment. Yes, now we're going to write it. And they're so optimistic. And then half an hour later, it's chaos and despair because they've started to write it and they started to pull out some other papers for support and hang on a second and and let me check this. And then it's the, oh no moment. and, And then 10 minutes later, there's an, oh yes moment. And at the end of one hour of very chaotic editing, they arrive at something that they hadn't imagined an hour before. And very often the conclusion is you need to go back to the lab and check this again, and you need to go back to the lab and run this new experiment. And this happens now more and more because they actually, many experiments these days are computer-based. So the student, he, he doesn't need to order new lab equipment. He can just change the script and press enter again, and then he's back. A week later with the new results so so this sort of um it's it's the this sort of the if you say that that the student acquires this scholarly identity it's a very painful acquisition of the scholarly identity okay like um they don't just choose a persona in a way they're their field, their results, the discussions that are happening in the field sort of choose the persona for them. You know, they are sort of molded by what one of the supervisor called one year of blood, sweat and tears. They are molded into this rhetorical persona that they end up with at the end in, in, in their articles.
0: And that, that, that's a fantastic way of putting it, and, and and it captures something that I had been playing around with as an idea while I was reading uh, uh, your book. Uh, the idea where, because you see so much of it happening in the air, and then also in the drafts that you provide as as figures um, in the air during the conversations, and then in the drafts that the paraphrasing that goes on, the paraphrasing of the sources, and as you say, this is this is such a <laughs> it's it, it's a painful birth to become the scientist right <laughs> and uh, it, the fact that for instance science doesn't quote but paraphrases already is for me the writing teaches the subject content because in the rewriting of the other person's idea you need to understand the other person's idea and relate it to your work so in other words this translation act is part of the subject content knowledge. It's, it's you know, the, the language and the knowledge, you can hardly peel them apart anymore at this level. And, and these are the things that send people back doing other experiments because they're unsure, right? They're unsure of what they've understood. And another wonderful finding from this, which, which you emphasize in the book as well, is the continuousness, right? From the bench to the submission, the writing is there. So the view that and this is, you know, the view that we talked about earlier what STEM people think, you know, writing support might look like the view that this is language instruction is just so far off the mark. The collaboration between the language professional and, and the STEM researcher or student needs to be at an entirely different level.
1: Absolutely. I mean there I really have to give credit to latour and volgar i mean this, this sort of continuity of the language work from the lab bench all the way to the final draft that comes straight from from their book you know like i i was very happy when i read their book because i said here's the foundation for for of, uh, for for what i'm trying to explain uh, obviously they were not looking at students they were not lo- looking at learning They were just looking at at how a proficient scientist performs this transformation. But their model of, of explaining how an article comes to life is very, very useful also for instructional purposes, for learning purposes.
0: Yes, and, and but it, it is always good to see, um, as as you do in so many cases uh, in your observations, the corroboration of people's former theories, because uh, that is what shows up this continuity from bench to to submission. And uh, sure, Latour uh, was talking about this long before, but uh, we need to make sure it's still there. <laughs> and it's one, <laughs> and it's wonderful to see it in other uh, instances uh, clearly as well. Um, and. and speaking about identity, I mean, again, one of the areas that your study contributes um, to is, okay, well, what is it then that is now entailed, if this is the reality of the STEM writer becoming a STEM writer, uh, the student, the PhD entering into the actual field of research, what does that entail then for the educational structure that needs to be behind him or her? So... Again, I get back to this issue of are we dealing with language instruction or are we dealing actually with almost what we would call perhaps field knowledge, you know, the, the necessary components of what it takes to be a scientist who researches and communicates their research, who, I mean, you can really just say researches, right? What's the point of researching without communication? <laughs> of
1: course No, That's an absolutely key point And that's, and that I noticed very early on, and then I kept developing this idea that always the student was always the student would walk into the room with their results and they would always argue from the point of personal conviction like oh i'm convinced this is happening i understand this now i know what i found and they would be happy with that and the and the supervisor would always say but we need to convince others we need to explain it to others we need to convince others and the supervisor would often model the responses of the reader to the student. He would always say, but if you say that, then these other people will say this, but they will not believe you. They will have these and these doubts. So the student is very much an innocent scientist, an innocent scientist who looks at the stars and finds something, and is just happy with that knowledge, with that knowledge that he or she gained with for themselves and they pretty much just want to get it down on a page and then run to the next experiment and it's always the supervisor who needs to slow them down and says no now comes the difficult part how do we convince the rest of humanity that this truth that you found in your heart is actually worthy to you know get into a textbook eventually so Absolutely, I would agree with you that it's not language, it's an integral part of their science that has just been miscatalogued as language problems when it's actually not. It's an integral part of doing science.
0: Yeah, and it shows up in uh, the sorts of troubles that the PhD students have, um, as, (laughs) as you make clear that their struggles are very often far less with the form of the research article and more encoding the research content so that it gets read. Um, The Chicago uh, Writing Program, for instance, often talks about this, this disconnect between the writing to think and the writing to communicate. So this idea that clearly you can write your lab notebook, you can write your first draft, and it makes sense to you. But you, yourself, as the writer, are getting in the way of your readers they're literally not seeing through your prose to get the idea as it belongs to the community so that that would appear to be the bridge that needs to be crossed absolutely
1: absolutely <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> again one of those <laughs> yes uh, uh i i i i don't know where else uh to go because if i start another topic in this book it's just there's just so there's just so much um i i i really uh, encourage readers uh listeners to go out there and 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 read this book if if you care at all about how mentoring in science works how writing in science works um this is the place to start, I suppose. Um, Pascal, uh, having been so generous with your time, I, I, w- I would like to wrap up, uh, though, with with one last question, and and it, it it really gets back, I suppose, to this issue of what is it that a language professional will, let's say. If we follow up this study, your study with with more and get a, a much clearer picture of what it is that's happening in STEM, what is it that a language professional is going to have to bring to the lab or if they accompany people out into the field, to the field to really assist them getting from graduate work to postgraduate work and into their first positions in research institutes?
1: Uh, yes i think one thing which well we already talked about a few things that before about a few things that language professionals can do for um the the science community the or the 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 doctoral studies community i think one thing that maybe i haven't mentioned before is that just to bring in these truth this hard truth about just to just maybe you know, sit down with uh, beginning doctoral students and their s- supervisor, maybe very early in the process, and just and just bring this difficult me- message that uh, there will be suffering. You know? <laughs> there will be suffering. There will be disagreements. This is not going to be easy because it has never been easy. And but there but that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and there, and there are all these resources from the language professional themselves to other um, to to uh, other students who are maybe a little bit ahead to the to to some um, unknown capacity of the supervisor themselves who maybe haven't self conceptualized as a writing mentor sufficiently yet. Or even to external um, teachers. For, for example, one of the beautiful things about how how this um, um, PhD by publication thing works in the sciences is that. There's so much outsourcing going on, you know. These students, they're allowed to make mistakes as well. You know, they 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 send the manuscript to a journal, and they get back three four pages of feedback, and half of that feedback is going to be on their writing, and that's normal too. It's not a failure; it's part of the system. So I so I think as language professionals we could do very well to to just sit down with the entire community or with the students or with the supervisors and just map them out this journey and say, this is what a journey looks like. This is how much writing is actually performed here by all these different people. And this is how these students need to grow as writers over three or four years. And that we will be there for them uh, uh, along the way as well.
0: I think that's wonderful. I mean, that there are hard times to come. <laughs> and, that the, and that that is part of the normal process. That emphasis on that is, I would say, key. I wonder if we couldn't, this is something I've brought up in other discussions, if we couldn't also succeed in passing on a sort of enthusiasm for communication. And I would I would find the seed of that in making clear at the same moment that hard times to come is also that, and that's part of the research, right? So the obtaining of data, the data analysis, the designing of experiments, that writing these things down in your lab notebook, the formulating it, reformulate it. As much as, much as a, a one line can be drawn around all of these activities, especially where so many, as you, as you say, and, and, and also prove in your study, so many young researchers are keen to research, right? The more we can shift or, or move closer to that research activity, the actual writing, perhaps we can raise that level of enthusiasm for what it is that they're doing in that moment then
1: yeah yeah absolutely maybe i should uh, rephrase the hard times and call them enriching times are ahead you know, you know sort of oh no they're hard they're <laughs> definitely hard
0: there's no <laughs> there's no need to downtone that but <laughs> but add on add on the yes. other message <laughs>
1: And as you say, we need to sort of uh, overcome this sort of disconnect between the non-writing and the writing part, to, to just have the students be much more comfortable shifting into writing, uh, to write more, more, more frequently, to just write more naturally, to not leave it until the last possible moment. You know? that's, that's something that we can definitely contribute to.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. Uh, That is uh, Pascal Matzler and his book, Mentoring and Co-Writing for Research Publication Purposes, is out now with Routledge. I'm Daniel Shea and this is goodbye from me to Pascal. Goodbye.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Goodbye.
0: And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.